Turn to Luke chapter 16. Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. There's power at the cross. There's power in the cross. Even if it falls on deaf ears, there's power in the message of the gospel. And next Sunday, Easter Sunday, you're going to hear that gospel message proclaimed from this pulpit And we want to encourage you to capitalize on this opportunity when people are most apt to accept an invitation to church, to think about those in your circles, think about those in your life that are far from God or that don't know Christ, and invite them to come here with you next Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, and pray throughout this week with us for God to work through the power of His gospel to impact lives And see people come to faith in Him. This morning, we pick up in Luke chapter 16, uh, where we left off last week. And we pick up in verse number 16. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter. But before we do that, I think it's important, uh, before we get into the text, that you remember what we saw last week. Because really, this this is one dialogue. And they don't seem to fit together at first glance. And maybe after I'm done, you still won't think they fit together. But I'm going to give it my best shot to to try to show you how they fit together in in my view. And what I've seen in the scriptures as I've read through them and looked at them this week. But I want you to remember what we saw last week because they are. They are one dialogue together. Um, So last week we saw a parable that Jesus, Jesus shared about a rich man and his unwise, unfaithful steward his unwise unfaithful manager he has this this man working for him managing his accounts who's also not being very faithful with his funds and the and the master calls this manager to him and says i want you to turn in your your papers i want you to turn in your files you've i want you to give an account of your management you can no longer be my manager in other words you're fired i want you to bring in your your paperwork well this guy then enters into a crisis because he doesn't know what to do he's not really strong enough to dig he's too prideful to beg he's got to figure out some way to make a living he's not going to get a good reference from his boss so he comes up with a plan and he calls in all of his master's debtors and he has them bring in their paperwork he has them Uh, He has them sit down and he takes their debts, he takes their paperwork and he reworks it all to where they owe much, much, much less than they did beforehand. Now his plan is, because he's doing such a good favor for them, that when he turns in his papers, yes, his master's going to lose even more. When when everything's final and he's fired, he can look to all of these debtors. And we have an, an example of a couple, but it said he called in all of the people that owed his master. He's going to look to these people for food. He's going to look to these people for lodging. He's going to look to these people for dignified, respectable work. He's going to look to these people to return the favor, so to speak. And the amazing thing is that his master actually praises him for his shrewdness. And then we saw how that applied in our lives last week, six different ways. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you, if you're inclined to go back and listen to that and write down those six ways that this message applies to us today. And, and in one, one sentence, I think it can say, we can say, we've got to get our minds off of the earthly and put them on eternity. We've got to get our minds off of the temporal and put our minds on the everlasting. We've got to get our minds off of money and put them on the master. 
We've got to get our minds off of retirement and put our minds on investing in the kingdom to come. It's really a parable that drives us to release our grip on the things of this world more and more and more and to cling to the things of the world yet to come more and more and more. Now, Jesus continues his sermon from last week in verses number 16 through 31. What does he say? Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it or is eager to get into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in pure purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Verse 29, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit, the living breath of God, can breathe new life into our weary souls this morning by the power of the gospel, the power of the cross that we see surface in every single scripture that we look at. I pray that you would give power and clarity to the word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand, hearts to believe and a will to obey what you say to us in this place this morning. We pray for you, Holy Spirit, to come and to speak and to work and to accomplish your purposes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. So Jesus is continuing his dialogue from verses 1 through 15 this morning. And he does it in kind of a strange manner, it seems, at first glance. But I want you to try to stay with me. Because I think it ties together. I hope it will tie together for you as we walk through it together. We're going to see six truths. 
six truths in this text. The first truth we're going to see is this. The law of God will accomplish its purposes. The law of God will accomplish its purpose. Simply put, the law of God, the law of God, the the Old Testament law, the prophets, it's either going to accomplish your judgment and it's going, to be, it's going to be the rule book that is laid beside the testimony of your life to condemn you and show you and everyone else in eternity that you have fallen short of the glorious standard of God and that the wages of your sin is just and justified and it is death and eternal separation from God. That law is either going to be used to condemn you and accomplish your judgment or that law will be used to motivate your salvation. But it will not fail. You see, if you seek justification by keeping the law, you're going to be judged by the law. If you're one of those people who walked in here this morning and your first answer when someone asks you, do you think you're going to spend eternity in heaven is, well, I'm doing better than I was 10 years ago. You know, when I was in high school, probably not. But now I think I'm doing better. than. If your doing is giving you any comfort, if you think your doing is going to get you any closer to heaven, then you will be judged by the law. You will be condemned by the law. You will fall short of the law. If you seek your justification by what you say, by what you do, by how you act, by how you live, you will be judged and you will be condemned. But if the law puts you in a helpless, hopeless place, and you realize that there's no way you're ever going to be good enough, and that law pushes you into the kingdom of God through the power of the gospel, you'll be saved. Either way, the law will accomplish its purpose. It will condemn you or it will help convert you. But it will not fail. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. I find it interesting that he says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. The old covenant was in place until John. That means that we're not obligated to keep Passovers. We're not obligated to celebrate Pentecost. We're not obligated or expected to sacrifice. We're not obligated to refuse to wear clothes that mingle their threads. We can even boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know why you would want to do that. But the old covenant, the old covenant was until John. It was as if John was a page break in history, so to speak. His coming marked an end and his coming marked a beginning. He was kind of like the interim. He was the interim between the old covenant and the new covenants who came calling the Jews out from under the Old Testament law to repent and to look to the coming Messiah and bear the fruits that result from real repentance. If you just turn back with me to Luke chapter 3, keep your place in Luke 16, mark Luke chapter 3 because we're going to come back there again in a moment. Listen to what John the Baptist is preaching to the Jews who have been under the law for centuries. He comes in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, he says this, the crowds were questioning him. They were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? In verse 11, he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. 
And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. John the Baptist comes in between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and he calls people to repent and that repentance was meant to result in a transformed life. It's not a rule keeping. Let's see what rules I need to keep today. The rules I need to keep today are read my Bible, pray, set aside some money to give to the church, don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang around with girls who do. Okay, I can check all those things off and feel really good about myself. No, throw the list away. Throw the list away and turn away from your old desires and your old efforts at self-righteousness. Repent of that. Submit yourself to Christ. He'll transform your heart and then you will want to please Him and obey Him. So John the Baptist comes as the interim between these two covenants. Back in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed unto John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. The law does not, did not, and will not fail. It serves its purpose. It serves its purpose as a tutor or a guardian. Listen to Galatians 3, 23 and 24. Before faith came, before the new covenant, before the gospel, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law serves its purpose as a tutor or a guardian. It keeps, It kept the Old Testament people of God barricaded in from total licentiousness. It protected them from their own selves. And as it kept them back, it, it kept them under the condemnation of the law. So they go and they sacrifice. And they go and they give. And they go into the temple and they pray. And they're trying to get out from under this burden. And let me just say to you, if your Christianity, Christianity this morning, feels that way, you don't really have Christianity. If your Christianity this morning feels like you're under a heavy burden, you just can't measure up, you just can't be good enough, you're never going to check off enough boxes, it's always going to be a dark cloud over your life and a burden on your life, that's not the Bible. That's not biblical Christianity. That's Old Testament law and or legalism. I'm just not going to ever be good enough. Well, newsflash. No, you're not. And no, I'm not. And no, we're not ever going to be good enough. That's what the law is meant to do. To be our guardian, our tutor. To show us that we're condemned. The law serves its purpose to condemn us all. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. Think about that. You can keep every single commandment in the Bible perfectly every day of your life. 
Every day of your life, 24-7, 365, keep every commandment perfectly, and you slip one time, condemned. Condemned. So how many of us are condemned? The law serves its purpose. It does not fail. It's a tutor, a guardian. It condemns us. It pushes us to Jesus. Galatians 3, 24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. That's the point of the law. It's not to make us look dignified. It's not to make us impressive. The point of the law is to lead us to Christ so that we can finally be justified. So that we can finally have peace with God by faith. The law did not fail. And Jesus just gives us a little glimpse of the law. In verse number 18 when he says, and I don't know why he chose this one. It just seems so out of place. He's, he's just finished talking about money. Eternity versus the earthly. Temporal versus the everlasting. And then he turns his attention and says, Hey, you know, John, he, he, came, as, he came here as kind of the middle man between the old covenant and the new covenant. And the law, you know, it does its job. Let me just give you an example. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband, commits adultery. Here's the standard. Marriage is reserved for one man and one woman, and that marriage is intended to last for life. And listen to how his disciples respond to that teaching in Matthew 19 and verse 10. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Apparently in their viewpoint... It was really, really difficult not to just write that certificate of divorce. And basically they're saying, look, if that's the standard, we better not get married. We're all going to fall short. It's impossible to keep the law. Right. This may seem like an odd insertion here, and it is kind of odd. But I think we're going to see John the Baptist and the Law and the Prophets come back before the story's over. So just, just hang with us, okay? Truth one, the law fulfills its purpose. It guards and tutors, it condemns, it brings us, drives us to Christ. It drives us to Christ. Truth number two, true religion, true religion is for real life. And I should have said, and death, but I didn't come up with that till this morning. And I didn't want to throw a hitch in all of the pretty things. So just know that true religion is for real life and real death. The rich and the poor live together in this story Jesus tells. In verse 19, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed. He habitually dressed. He's not going to a party. He's not going to a wedding. He's not going to a feast. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Here's a rich man who used his money... To put the finest clothes on his back and put the finest foods on his table and live in splendor every day. Remember what verses 1 through 15 was about? It was about what? Money. It was about storing up earthly treasures. It was about living for the temporal rather than the eternal. Jesus steps in and says, hey, the law will accomplish its purposes, guys. And let's just get back to money. There was a rich man. 
And he used his money to put food on his table and to put fancy clothes on his back. He lived the American dream before they even knew that America existed. And you think about in verse 14 from last week, what did the Pharisees do in the middle of Jesus' teaching? In verse 14, it said that the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. So he just says, hey, Pharisees, how many of you are addressing luxuriously? How many of you are feeding yourselves luxuriously and going in and out of the temple gate and walking by people like we're about to meet in verse 20? See, the rich and the poor live together. Verse 20, a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, this rich man's gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. The poor man lives, lays at the gate of the rich man where he can be seen every day as the rich man, clothed in his pomp and circumstance, walks out of his gate and back into his gate. All this guy wanted, all Lazarus wanted was just some crumbs. Throw me your scraps. They lived together within sight of one another for the rich man to leave his place and walk by Lazarus and not see Lazarus would mean that he's turning a blind eye to Lazarus. And Proverbs 28 and 27 says, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. And hear me, hear me, for this rich man who claimed to be a Jew, as we're going to see in a minute, who claimed to be a good Jew, a son of Abraham, as as we're going to see later on, For him to walk by a poor Jew like Lazarus who was needy, a brother who was needy, was a violation of the law that would not fail. Deuteronomy 15, 11, The poor will never cease to be in the land, therefore I command you, saying, You shall, you shall, I command you, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your Needy and poor in your land. So the rich man to walk by his brother Jew, his fellow Jew, and turn a blind eye to him was a violation of the law which Jesus had just said will not fail in its purpose to either condemn you or drive you to the new kingdom. Does that make sense? You with me? The rich and the poor live together. And the law which will not fail commands the rich to open his hand. The rich and the poor die together. Now, real religion is for real life and death because the rich and the poor die together. Verse 22, now the poor man died. That's not a surprise. He's covered in sores. He's starving to death. He's sick. He's needy. He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, let's just stop here. This is free. It wasn't in the notes. That's usually dangerous, but I think we're going to be safe this time. You know, you kids, when you hear that, the, that Lazarus was carried to Abraham's bosom, you probably have a picture of a giant Abraham standing there and a little Lazarus living in his tummy. And you're going, I thought Jesus was supposed to live in my heart, and then we live in Abraham's tummy. This doesn't make sense to me. And some of your adults are going, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either, right? Bosom? Huh? So in that day and age, and I'm going to try to make this quick, in that day and age when people ate, they had a table that was low to the ground, And they all would lie down on their left elbow with their face near the table, their feet away from the table because those things were dirty. And they would take their right hand and they would eat 
on their side. Don't ask me why. It's a cultural difference. Do you remember John laying back on Jesus' breast? That sounds weird too, doesn't it? Until you realize they're all laying around the table, which meant John was right next to Jesus. So when he wants to ask him, who's going to betray you? And everybody's saying, John, ask him, ask him. John can lean back quietly and say, Jesus, who's going to do it? That makes sense? So the picture we have is that Abraham is feasting in eternity, laying on his elbow, and guess who's lying right there next to him in his bosom? Right hand of Father Abraham himself is the old guy laying at the gate, covered in sores, who doesn't even have food to put on the table. Talk about an utter failure. What a loser. But he goes to Abraham's bosom, lying on Abraham's side, and the rich man, listen to his obituary, he died and was buried. They both die. Psalm 49. Listen to these verses from Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. Tune in your ears. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding. That describes the rich man. Money cannot save you from death no matter how much you have. You can be a billionaire, and if you get diagnosed with stage 3 pancreatic cancer, you're a goner, no matter how much money you spend. Money cannot save you from death, and even more importantly, money cannot save you from hell. You can't give enough money to the church to reserve you a spot in heaven. You can't give enough money to the mission to reserve yourself a spot in heaven. You cannot give enough or do enough. You can't take your money with you when you go. The rich fool had great crops. He looked at his crops and he says, what am I going to do with them? He says, I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to store up my crops and then I can kick my feet up in my recliner and watch ESPN and eat and drink and be merry. Except the Lord says, you fool. Tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. And then who will all those things be? Whose will all those things be? The rich and the poor live together. They die together. And listen, true religion, true religion is for real life and real death. We have taken Christianity and we have compartmentalized it to this thing we do on Sunday that does not affect the rest of our life. Monday through Saturday. It doesn't affect our relationship with our spouse. It doesn't affect our relationship with our children. It doesn't affect our relationship with our job or our money or anything else. We come to church on Sunday. We check the box. We compartmentalize that over here. Save it for next Sunday. And we go through our life during the week just like the rest of the people in the world. And then we come back and do our Sunday thing again. No, no, no. True Christianity, true religion is for real life. And it's there in real death. Third truth, religion, and these are kind of building, I think. Religion that doesn't rearrange our lives isn't real. Do you hear me? Religion that does not rearrange our lives is not real. You think, 
Well, I came to Jesus and I walked right out the doors and I was like I always was. I did like I always did. I was who I always was. That's not true Christianity. Religion that doesn't re rearrange our lives isn't even real. Look in verse 23. In Hades, talking about the rich man, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away. Here's somebody who said, I'm a child of Abraham. And yet Abraham is far away. And Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham. There's your cue. He's a Jew. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I'm in agony in this flame. Think of the audacity of this guy who looks up there, sees Lazarus at the right hand of Abraham, the, the, the chosen guest at the feast, and he has the audacity from hell to say, send that poor sore-covered beggar down here to cool my tongue off. He's really a repentant guy, isn't he? Even in hell, you won't repent. He's in hell trying to get Lazarus to serve him. Still playing the upper hand. He's a Jew, and yet he's in hell. And that, that blew the minds of the Pharisees. That blew the minds of the scribes and the lawyers. That blew the minds of all of the Jews in his hearing. Because Jewishness, Jesus is saying, your Jewishness is not going to save you. Your religiosity is not going to redeem you. The rich man in the parable is one of those who would, who would say, I'm secure as a child of Abraham, and if you don't believe it, just look at what God's done for me. You don't think I'm a child of Abraham? You look on my table and see how God's blessed. You look at what I'm wearing. You look in my closet. You see how God's blessed. You look where I live. You see how God has blessed. And you say, I'm not a child of Abraham. He thought he was secure as a Jew, as a child of Abraham, but he bore no fruit that befits repentance as John had commanded him back in Luke chapter 3. He shared no food, no clothes, nothing. Go back to Luke chapter 3. And let's back up to verse 8 this time and hear what John preaches. Therefore, let's just back up to verse 7. He he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. He was very politically correct, seeker-sensitive kind of preacher. You brood of vipers. I mean, that's nice. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, listen to what he says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not, what? Bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And they began to say, what should we do? And he says, the man who has two tunics should share with the one who has none and with food you should do likewise so here's a jew a child of abraham a son of abraham who claims abraham as his father 
who's been blessed by God with plenty of food and plenty of clothes, walking by the guy laying at his gate covered in sores who does not have food and does not have clothing, and he ignores John the Baptist's message, hanging on to his Jewishness, and he refuses to bear fruits in keeping with the repentance that John called for, and he ignores this guy, and he doesn't give him his tunic, he doesn't give him his food, and he goes straight to hell. He went to hell because he did not repent and his life never changed. A religion that does not rearrange our lives is not real. You can just hear those Pharisees who were scoffing in verse 14. We're children of Abraham. And we love money. And we're going to scoff at your message. So Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story about a child of Abraham. We're Jews, so don't threaten us with hell over the fruit of our wallets. We're still Jews, and that's enough. And some of you may be thinking, we're Baptists. Been Baptist all my life, and God's blessed me. And by golly, God's blessed me, and I'm going to use it. I'm going to live it. I'm going to appreciate it. I'm going to enjoy it. My mama was a Christian. My daddy was a Christian. My grandparents on both sides were Christians. So don't be coming at me. Talking about how I use my money. It's got anything to do with where I spend eternity. I prayed and asked Jesus to save me, and that's enough. Children of Abraham. Do we remember the, the third truth? Religion. Religion that does not rearrange your life isn't real. So you may be a Baptist. Your mom and daddy may have been Baptist. Your grandparents may have been Baptist. And you may have prayed the prayer and signed the card and be a deacon. But if your relationship with Jesus and your religion has not rearranged your life, it is not real. Fourth truth. And again, I think they're building. The faith which justifies, purifies. Look at verse 25. This is troubling. Abraham said... He's looking at the rich man, and he says, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. In other words, it's like you swap places here. See, you, you got it in the earthly life. You're going to suffer in eternity. Lazarus suffered in his earthly life. He's going to get it in eternity. And that just seems troubling, doesn't it? Because we're all sitting in this room, and if we all make over $42,000 a year on average, we're some of the 2% of the richest people in the whole world. So we're all pretty much very, very wealthy. Top 2%, many of us, if not most of us. So I'm thinking, I've gotten some good things in this life. How about you? I mean, you, you look at, we don't look at what I drive. But look, you look at my house. I've got running water. I actually flush my toilet with drinking water. Did you know you all do that too? The same water that comes into your house that you drink fills up your toilet. You realize what a luxury that is when, when much of the world has filthy, parasite-filled drinking water. We're rich. And Abraham is saying to us, if you get a good life, you go to hell. If you get a tough life, you go to heaven. That seems backwards, and it is 
backwards. Let's not read it that way. Let's not get that in our mind. What does he mean? Because the Jews are saying, don't tell me the way I use my money could jeopardize my eternal destiny. And some of you are saying, don't tell me the way I use my money and how much money I make could jeopardize my eternal destiny. How many times do we sing, does Tom say, do I say in a worship service that we need the grace of God and the only way we can be saved is through faith alone and the power of the cross alone? How many times do we hear that? So don't say it's faith plus how are you spending your money? Let me see your wallet. Let me see your check, checkbooks. Let me see your bank statements. So what does Abraham mean? Abraham means a faith that justifies, a real faith that justifies us before God, saves us, and purifies us from sin. Even from the sin of the love of money. You know, in Matthew, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? Sin. Jesus didn't come primarily to save us from hell. He came to save us from our sin. And a faith that justifies us and that saves us and purifies us, saves us and purifies us from our sin, even the sin of the love of money. Now, I pulled this on you last week. I don't think you're going to fall for it again. If I ask you, how many of you love money? Last week, you know, there were only a couple of honest people. And then I said, how many of you would say you want to be rich? And a lot of you admitted that. The rest of you probably told a story. But I remind you of 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction for, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So what is the love of money? It is a desire to be rich. If you desire to be rich, you're going to wonder. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and it will plunge you into destruction. So we have a problem. Most of us, if not all of us, at some level, have a battle with the love of money. And don't worry, Jesus is going to deal with this again in just a chapter or two. But the faith which justifies us will also purify us. The faith which which justifies us will save us from our sin, even the sin of the love of money. Now, don't get confused. Hear me. If you're dozing off, if you're making notes, I need to do better with my money so I can go to heaven. You took down the wrong note. So if you're sitting out there and you're writing down, I need to do better with my money so I can go to heaven You're under the law. You're trying to do. You're going to fall short. The law is going to condemn you. You're going to go to hell. Don't get confused. You can't say, well, I guess I need to do better with my money if I want to go to heaven. You know you can't do good enough works to get to heaven. You can't give enough or pay your way into heaven. Don't misunderstand. But do understand that a faith which saves and purifies will also, by God's grace, Rearrange our lives and save us and purify us even from the love of money. Which leads to truth number five. Don't miss this one. It is not a shift in spending that changes your eternity. 
But it is a shift in eternity that changes your spending. Are you with me? Do you follow that? It's not a shift in spending that changes your eternity. It's a shift in eternity that changes your spending. Why? Because real religion rearranges our lives. Why? Because real religion is for real life, everyday life, and our death. And the law is right there hovering over saying, you try to do it right, I'm going to condemn you, send you to hell. Just, the law's hanging over saying, let me just drive you to Jesus. He's your only hope. He's your only help. He'll change your life, rearrange your life, change your eternity, and then your spending will reflect that. Does that make sense? You store up treasure on earth, then your heart is on earth. You store up treasure in heaven, when your heart is in heaven. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your desires, goals, and priorities will change when you encounter Christ. If during our time on earth we pursue things instead of Christ, then earth is likely going to be the extent of our heaven and eternity will be our hell. And let us not miss that we're talking about eternity here. We're not talking about a slap on the wrist at the judgment seat. You know, you should have done better with your money. No, it's a final judgment. It's eternity. Read on in verse 26. Abraham says, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. There's no way out. Death is utterly final. The bed we make in this life, we will likely sleep in forever. So we don't set a list of to-dos to do better so that we can bribe our way into heaven. No, we throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of Christ. He rearranges our lives. He changes our eternity. And then our spending and our relationship with money and earthly things changes based on that. Our desires change based on that. Truth number six. And this is one we've been waiting on. Either because you're ready to go and eat lunch or because you're ready for the final point that that really answers all of our questions. The solution to the love of money, or lostness for that matter. We see it in verse 27 and following. He said, the rich man says, And I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. That's an admirable wish, isn't it? An admirable prayer. Please just send Lazarus... I don't know why he didn't want to go himself and say, hell is hot and Abraham's bosom is nice. But he wanted Lazarus to go. Tell his brothers so they can avoid hell. But Abraham said in verse 29, they have what? Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. That takes us all the way back to the beginning of the sermon where we learned that the law and the prophets will not fail in their purpose. The only solution to a love of money, the only solution to a lostness and an eternity in hell is the word of God. 
Abraham said the law and the prophets. What do the law and the prophets do? They're a tutor. They're a guardian. They condemn us. They hopefully drive us to Jesus. And we see that Jesus Christ lived the perfect, sinless, law-abiding life in our place. And that Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, He took our sin upon Himself. And our sin debt, our law failings were judged in full Paid in full by Jesus who was buried in a barred tomb. Rose from the grave on Sunday morning. And is at the right hand of the Father with the bride saying, Come, come. The Spirit and the bride say, Come to me. Get out from under the law. Let it drive you to me. And I'll wash away all of your sin. I'll purify you from your sin. I'll purify you from your love of money. I'll make you right with me. I'll give you peace with me Come to me. And listen, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that is more effective. We can't come up with a gimmick. Lifeway can't write a new program that is any more effective than the gospel. According to Romans 1.16, the gospel is the, not a, not one of many, but the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You want to see people come to faith? We just have to sing the gospel. We just have to preach the gospel. We just have to pray the gospel. There is nothing more we can do. There's nothing more that's, that's more effective. Not even if somebody were to come back from the dead and stand among us and testify. Would it be more powerful than the gospel message of Jesus Christ? Some of you are saying, no, that's, yeah, if somebody showed up from the graveyard, I'm in. But, but that's, exact, that's what the rich man said. Too. Look in verse 30. But he said, no, Father Abraham, the law and the prophets are not good enough. The word of God's not good enough. The gospel message isn't good enough. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent then. But he said to them, listen to what Abraham said to him. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If the gospel is not sufficient to bring about your salvation, hear me, nothing will. If you haven't heard enough yet, there's nothing more to say. Not even the testimony of one who died and came back to life. You remember in John 11? Jesus goes to visit Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus is sick. And he gets there and he finds Lazarus. No pun intended. Lazarus buried four days and all the Jews are gathered there weeping with Mary and Martha. And Jesus says, roll the stone away. And Martha's like, no, don't roll the stone away. There'll be a stench. He's been dead four days and it's hot here. And Jesus says, believe. Roll away the stone. He rolls away the stone. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes out of the grave alive and apparently begins to testify with his life to his life and his death and even his resurrection. And in John chapter 12, one chapter later in verses 9 and 10, it says the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests, the rich Jews, planned to put Lazarus to death. Also, you know what? If the gospel's not good enough to save you and to convince you this morning, you know what you would want to do with someone who rose from the dead and walked into this room and said, hey, let me tell you, hell's hot, heaven's great, turn to Jesus and be saved. You just want to get rid of them. 
You just want to get them, get shit out of them. And listen, Jesus died and rose from the grave. And he is here in his spirit testifying that hell is hot, heaven's sweet. Come to faith in Christ. As usual, our greatest need, even, even in the midst of an earth that wants to grip us, even in the midst of temporal things that want to enslave us, even in the midst of our love of money and our battle with covetousness and greed, our greatest need is not a self-help course, a checklist, a to-do list. Our greatest need is the gospel. The law of God accomplishes its purpose and it drives us to what? The gospel, true religion, gospel-centered religion is for real life and real death. Religion that doesn't rearrange our lives isn't real. It isn't true gospel religion. The faith which justifies a faith rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ also saves and purifies even from the love of money. It's not a shift in spending that changes our eternity. It's a shift in eternity that comes through the power of the gospel that changes our spending. And the solution this morning to our love love of money and the love of this life and the love of this world and our lostness is the gospel. Our greatest need this morning is the gospel. May we believe it, embrace it, and be changed by it. Would you bow with me? Father, we come to you in prayer, thanking you that your gospel is sufficient and that your mercy is plenteous and that your grace is lavish and we know that we have all sinned and come short of your glorious standard whether we're Christians or whether we're not Christians we sin and we are a mess God and we need your grace and your forgiveness and your gospel for everyday real life not just when we face death So I pray now this morning as we prepare our hearts to sing that we would look into our hearts and we would call upon you, Holy Spirit, to look into our hearts and our lives and search us and show us whether or not we truly have been transformed and rearranged by the power of your gospel, whether it affects our life as it should. And I pray if there's a person here who knows they've just checked some boxes, they live under the cloud of guilt, they live under the cloud of law and legalism, and they don't have the freedom and the joy and the hope and the peace that surpasseth all understanding through Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance, that you would grant them faith even now, that you would give them the courage to tell someone they trust or one of us before they leave this place. God, work in our hearts, work in our lives. And we'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. As we stand, we're going to.